morning. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. This morning in our lesson together, we're going to continue in our series, our theme uh, from the book of Philippians, uh, and particularly focus our attention uh, on Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. Christians shining as lights in the world. Jesus said, let your light so shine. He also said that you are the light of the world. Uh, The image of light being the uh, Christian's response, not only the Christian's responsibility, but the reality, the influence of the Christian is a powerful image. Uh, it's a picture, a compelling picture of our identity to think that we are and to know that we are the light of God, that we are lights in a dark world. Um, in a future lesson, Lord willing, we're going to take a closer look at uh, light as it applies to God inherently. God is light and in him no darkness at all, and even more indirectly uh, to us as the light of the world. But today I want to begin in Philippians chapter 2, in the first part of that verse. Paul says that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so he says that you and I shine as lights in the world, but in the context of the passage, we're going to look at the first part of that, he's saying that we become that, that we are not just that magically or mystically, that our ability to shine in a dark world uh, is a responsibility that we must uh, take seriously. And so, beginning then in the middle of the verse, we recognize we're beginning in the middle, beginning in this verse, we're beginning in, uh, recognize the beginning of a th- middle of a thought, that we have to look at the context around us to get the whole picture, and we try to do that as we've talked about these particular passages um, as we go through them. The opening words depict, I think, an intended purpose. When he says, that you may become, he's talking about the end result of a process or something that will take place as a result of something else. We are to become something as a result of what he's already mentioned or what he's already said, hence the idea of that you may become. If we back up a little bit, what we talked about last week in verse 14 is that God tells us there, Paul tells us that we should not be a people that complain and dispute with one another, that in everything, we need to do it without complaining and without disputing that we might become faultless, blameless children of God. So if we take a positive attitude, and I like that song we just sang a few moments ago, uh, right before the lesson, uh, that uh, it goes right along with this idea here of what we're talking about, the purpose, uh, the intended purpose of God, that we would shine our lights in the world, that we've got to stop being from people that complain that fight and fuss with one another, that what our perspective on life must be that the Lord has been mindful of me, the Lord has blessed me, I'm rich, I'm saved, I have everything that I need. Look at my life and recognize that I am satisfied with God. If we are able to do that, and we talked about that some last week, then what Paul would present to us here in the continuing thought is that the intended purpose of God for us will be met, that we will become what God wants us to be. Now you back up even a little bit further and you recognize that's where Paul's been going with this thought all along because earlier he said that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling followed by the thought that it's God who works in us. So there is a work going on. We're involved in consistent obedience to work out our own salvation to see that we get to where God wants us to be and where we want to go and that is to be saved in the end. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, always knowing and recognizing that God is doing something within us. What that presents to me as I look at this phrase here, that you may become, is that what Paul is telling us is that 
God's intention is my intention. And my intention is God's intention. That my work is God's work and God's work is my work. That we're working together. We're bringing about the accomplishment of something in me and in you and I. That we might become what God wants us to be. Are you becoming what God wants you to be? Is that the path you're traveling? Is that where you're going with your life? Is that what you're attempting to accomplish? Even as you gather here together, you study his word, you go out into the world to do what God would give us to do. Paul uses two adjectives in here that I think are important for us to look at and consider when we think about what it means to let our light shine and to be the children of God. He says that you may become blameless and harmless. Now, those two adjectives are similar in their meaning. We'll see that as we talk about what they actually are defined as. If there is a distinction to be seen between the idea of what the New King James words are, harmless and blameless, it may be that one describes the character of a person from the outside as he is viewed by others, and the other describes the character of the person from within that he knows and that God knows. And so it may be that Paul uses these two words that are very similar in their meaning to provide for us a comprehensive picture of the character of the child of God. That this is what God wants you to be. He wants you to be all of this. He wants you to be blameless and he wants you to be harmless. The term blameless is from the Greek word uh, amiptos, which means to be blameless or it means to be a person who deserves no censure, free from fault or defect. F.B. Meyer says that it's moral integrity as manifesting itself in the judgment of others. So the idea of blamelessness is the idea here that you can't be blamed for something or you can't be held up as being accused of something. That is the idea here that you are an individual who is free from censure. Now is there a sense in which you and I can be blameless? That we have no faults? Well, obviously we recognize that as we recognize this principle in our own life, and even what the Bible tells us about ourselves, that we're not free from sin in a comprehensive way. That we have all sinned before God, and that every man has uh, fallen short of the grace of God. And so we've sinned, and we've become guilty before God, but the blood of Jesus Christ provides forgiveness, it provides redemption, it provides atonement. And the reason why that's so important is that we have the opportunity through the blood of Jesus Christ to stand without blame before God, to stand with righteousness before God, even before His judging eye. So the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that's made possible through that blood, is ultimately how a person becomes blameless. And I don't want us to forget that in this discussion, nor overlook the aspect of It's God the one who's working in us, this aspect of making us without blame. But I also want you to recognize that as the scripture deals with the idea of the character of the Christian, it assumes or makes known that we have faults, yet it describes the the opportunity for you and I to be in the eyes of others someone who is not blameworthy, someone who is without blame, based upon the fact that we make the choices that we make. Paul presents it this way in Romans chapter 6. We are under grace. Shall we continue to sin because we're under grace? And the answer to that question by the Apostle is certainly not. Because you have died to sin. And because you have died to sin, then you should no longer live in it. The fact that I have been forgiven of my sins and God has made it possible to be without blame is the very reason why, the motivating factor in why I should live without sin today. Why I should live a life that is free from the accusation of others. To, believe, to live a blameless life. 
The Apostle John says three times in his first epistle, the person who is born of God does not sin. That's fascinating language, isn't it? That the person who is born of God, that's you and I, Christians, the person who is born of God does not sin. He says it three times. Does he mean by that that it's impossible for a Christian once he's become a Christian to never sin again? You and I know that's not true. Christians do sin. So what does John mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean that a Christian never sins, but he means that a Christian life is not punctuated by sin. That the person who's come to God, you see, is living a different way than he did before. That he's striving to live a life apart from sin in every way in his life to live without sin. That that's a part of the element of being born again. The idea of being a new person is that it's a new person towards another intended purpose than the old life. And that intended purpose is to live without blame. So that's what Paul is presenting to us here. In Titus chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said it this way, In all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Paul told Titus, we need to live in such a way that people can't come back to us and say, well, look at you. That they can't blame us or they can't, you see, be ashamed of the way that we live. That it doesn't erase the credibility of what we say by the things that we do. Why is it important for us to be blameless in this respect? Well, I believe that what we come to recognize, something that we mentioned last week, there's, there's nothing that hinders our effort to influence another individual toward righteousness than inconsistency and hypocrisy. Not only is it the first time, the first thing the unbeliever will see, but it's something that he cannot miss in our life, that he can't take their eyes off to see Jesus, they can't take their eyes off the inconsistency of the hypocrisy that's found in the lives of others. I've often illustrated with, uh, there's a commercial a while uh, that appeared a, a few years ago, um, I think it was a, uh, a detergent, for, for a detergent shirt, where a guy goes into for an interview, a job interview, and he's got this white shirt and tie. He's got a big stain right here. And the, the, he's trying to answer the questions of the interviewer while he's got this big stain. The stain keeps talking. Every time he starts to say something, the stain talks and, 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 and drowns out what he's saying. And the fellow who's giving the interview can't see anything but the stain. And that's kind of the way it is when we think about this aspect of, the, of hypocrisy in the life of a Christian is that it drowns out what the person is trying to make known to someone what might actually be truth because the hypocrisy is there. And so Paul would enjoin to us to live in such a way that we can't be, we can't be blamed or censured by the things that we, we are doing, the choices that we make. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye? First remove that plank out of your eye and then you'll be able to see the speck that's in your brother's eye that the first step to correcting the error of somebody else's life is to look inward. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers they may by your good works which you uh, which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Yeah, that's going to speak against you, he says. They're going to talk, that they're going to say that what you're saying is not true, but don't allow your life to get in the way. Make them ashamed of what they're saying about you by the way that you live. In verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then later on in chapter 3, he says, Having a good conscience, that, they, uh, uh, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revalue good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Let me ask you, are you living in such a way that those who speak against the truth are ashamed of what they're saying when it comes to you. 
that they might be able to apply those principles every place else, but when they get to you, they say, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't really apply to you. Because what I see in your life is good, is right. So how do we become blameless in the very sense of this word? Let me suggest three ways. That's not the passage I want. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'll give them to you right here. How do you become blameless? First, we practice what we preach. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? Practice what you preach. You're going to say, this is the way a person ought to live. You live that way yourself. To live consistently within the words of God as best you can. Now, what that requires, you see, is that not only that I recognize the danger of hypocrisy in my own life, but whenever I find myself off course, whenever I find myself not being consistent with what I teach, that I immediately retract and denounce that and confess my sin and repent of it. Especially when that type of thing becomes easily seen by others. That to try to rationalize or to try to excuse it away or to put myself in a special class where it doesn't really apply to me or somehow you see ignore it as though it doesn't apply to me defeats the purpose. It erases the ability of a blameless life. And then when we attempt to teach others, we must do it in a spirit of gentleness. We must do it in a spirit of patience and humility and compassion. Galatians chapter 6, if any man's overtaken in any trespass, your spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to law, all able to teach and patient and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. So he's presenting to us this aspect here that if I'm going to teach somebody else the truth, if I'm going to try to be a light shining in a dark place, then my life is the first thing I must deal with. My consistent obedience to God is the first prerequisite to being able to be effective in teaching others. Then when I go to teach someone, I must always present to them in in my attitude about myself that I've not yet arrived. I'm not perfect. I as well am an individual, you see, who is striving to be what God would want me to be. That before I ever try to impress upon you God's intended purpose for your life, I recognize the importance of that intended purpose for my own life. And that's the pathway to this aspect, you see, of being blameless. I don't know if these are in the right order or not. We'll see. Try to keep up. (laughs) We're to be blameless, but then Paul joins to that word the word harmless. In the Greek language, the word there is akareos, which is translated as harmless in the King James Version and in the New King James Version. What's interesting is that may not be the best translation of the original word. Sometimes words that come out of the original language or they get into our language, they have a different connotation to them, and therefore we may lose sight of what the original word actually was presenting to us. The term here, the Greek term, does not denote harmlessness uh, as found in something that is innocuous or something that can't do any kind of uh, activity of all that's powerless, like a harmless little kitten. That's not the meaning of this particular word. The word literally means without a mixture of evil, free from guile, innocent, or that which, was, that which is simple in regard to that which is evil. The idea here is that the character of the Christian must be that which is pure, that which is innocent. It's closely related to what we've just been talking about in the sense of being blameless. But it has to do with a moral integrity that reflects the inward nature of the individual. 
It's used two other times in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, sometimes the King James, New King James kind of throw us off here because it also translates that word by the word harmless in the English language. But when Jesus was preparing his disciples for the limited commission, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be as wise as serpent and as harmless as doves, the King James Version says. The better translation, as some translations give it, is probably the word innocent. That what Jesus was saying to the disciples, I am sending you out, you must be shrewd and be wise in what you do. But your life must reflect an innocence, the innocence even as a dove. It doesn't mean that they were going to be powerless or they were to just go on whatever came along or just be a, you see, a, 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 a stomping mat for whoever who wanted to take advantage of them. It's the idea here that they were to live in such a way and to be innocent of their own life that there was no guile found within them. In Romans chapter 16, verse 19, Paul uses the same word again. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple, or the King James uses the word harmless there, simple concerning evil. The idea there of simple or simplicity is not the idea of being naive, but it's the concept of being pure. That I'm able to deal with evil and I'm able to confront evil because <coughs> I'm not an active participant in it. And so Paul says, I want you to be wise to what is good. I want you to know what God wants you to do. And when it comes to evil, you can't participate in it. You must be simple in regards to that, those, those things that are evil. And as I mentioned, I don't believe he's calling Christians to close their eyes to the evil around them or to be naive about what's going on in the world, to shut themselves up in a corner. That's not the solution to the aspect of being influenced by the culture around us. But harmlessness is. Innocence is. Innocence is an absolute confrontation of evil in the personal life of the individual who is confronting that evil. Anything else, any other compromising position, you see, reduces my ability to confront evil in the life of myself and my children and my family and my society. So Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15... That we are to be harmless. That we are to be free from any taint or suspicion of evil. To never be suspected of duplicity that I'm saying one thing and doing another. To never be feared of the potential harm or violence that I might do to the cause or to someone else in the name of religion or the name of the cause. So we have to understand in terms of the meaning of this word that when Paul calls us to be harmless, he's not talking about some kind of impotency to confront evil. He's not saying we must just let it go by and not ever come, not, not ever confront or not ever deal with evil or not ever rebuke evil. The writer of Hebrews uses the word again, or at least a form of this word in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. Talking about Jesus, he says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and who has become higher than the heavens. Now, what's it mean to say that Jesus was harmless in the society in which he lived, or harmless in, the, in his work as a high priest? It doesn't mean that he was without any power. It doesn't mean, you see, that he was impotent or that he was uh, afraid to confront it. In fact, the very element of the high priest in the work of the tabernacle was to confront evil in the most bold way, to go in the very presence of God with the blood of the animal to remit sin, to stand as an intermediary for those who had sinned. In the previous verses, the writer of Hebrews declares about Jesus that he overcame evil and he saved to the uttermost those 
who came to him. So Jesus' harmlessness was found in his ability to fight against evil with absolute integrity. What is described about Jesus in these words is that he was absolutely without sin. He was pure to the nth degree. There was not the taint of sin in him. Therefore, he was able to function in the absolute way as our high priest. He was holy and separate from sinners. Now that's a high bar, isn't it? To think that Jesus would be described in the same word that Paul says, I must be. Yet, the Bible never backs, backs away from that. The Scriptures never present to us a lower standard of holiness and righteousness than God Himself. Be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. The idea of sinlessness is presented in the life of the Christian as an absolute ideal. Not with the perspective that you and I will ever reach that in this life. Or that we should boast about the fact that we are without sin in any degree in our life. Because we are not. But the platform of absolute integrity is the basis on which you see, the only basis on which I can really fight against evil and oppose it. I must do it innocently. I must do it blamelessly. Now there's some applications of that, I believe. There are those today, I believe, who oppose evil with all good intention, but they don't do it harmlessly. They are not innocent or blameless in the methods in which they oppose evil, even though their intentions are good. There are those in the pro-life movement with the desire to save the life of innocent children who use intimidation and harassment and sometimes even violence to further their cause. Yes, they are opposing evil, doing what is right, but not harmlessly, and therefore they lose their credibility. There are those who threaten economic blackmail through boycotting to force others to accept the teachings of the Bible, things that they are convinced on and they are convicted of, things that are true, but their methods are not harmless because they intend to do harm to someone else in order to bring about good. There are those within the so-called Christian advocacy groups many times who often try to dig up dirt on political opponents, find something to accuse my opponent with so that I can destroy his credibility. Those are not God's ways. The posing of evil is always what God wants us to do. And whatever venue may find ourselves in, to stand up for what is right, but can never be done in a way that's blameworthy, in a way that's not harmless, in a way that, you see, causes us to lose our credibility. And sometimes Christians are spoken evil of. Not because they are evil, but because their methods are not harmless. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3 about his own ministry, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. This is important, Paul says. It's not just what we do, it's how we do it. And so what we do, you see, we do without offense. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he said to the very same audience providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. That we'll be cognizant of how we do this because not only is God watching, but men are watching too. And that wherever I go, whatever I would do, I will do all things to bring about the salvation of those who are lost. Do we understand the primary place of that particular goal in the Christian life? The salvation of those who are unsaved? The bringing about of the unbeliever to being a believer? The loss to a condition of being saved? That's what we're all about. That's what God calls us to. Anything that interrupts that gets it's in the way of that, you see. is not only counterproductive, but against the intentions of God. That we have to be individuals that take seriously our influence. And so Paul says that you might become children of God without fault. Again, we recognize that these words don't describe the perfect sinless life. For we all have sinned. And as James says that if we, John says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
But the word used here in the Greek language, amamos, means unblemished. Unblemished, sometimes the word is used literally, sometimes it's used metaphorically, to be that which is without reproach. It would seem that the greatest use of this particular word in, in the Hebrew equivalent uh, is that which describes the sacrifice that would be brought to God. That this is the word that God uses to describe the animal that the person would take out of his flock to give to God. That he is to be an unblemished male of the first year. It would seem evident to me that this is the background from which Paul would introduce the word here in this text. That we are to be children of God without fault, unblemished. It's interesting that the word that was used so extensively to talk about the sacrifice, the literal unblemishedness of an animal, is also used by Peter to talk about metaphorically, I believe, the aspect of Jesus himself. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. And so Peter would make it known to us that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. It's not hard for us to connect the sacrifice of the Old Testament with the work of Jesus on the cross. He is the lamb that was sacrificed, the lamb of God. But what kind of lamb was he? Peter would include in this the use of this term. Jesus was the unblemished lamb. The sacrificed lamb that was given in the Old Testament, the one that person would choose the best that he had out of his flock was a type of Christ. It was a type of the sacrifice to come in the sense that it was unblemished. It was pure. And so what's the implications? Well, one implication is that God's people are supposed to look like Jesus. That they are to be unblemished. He used the same terminology to describe the animal of sacrifice, Jesus himself, in terms of his sacrifice for us, to say that you and I must be children of God without fault. Paul uses the same word to describe God's church as the recipients of God's grace in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. So as Paul describes the character of the church that belongs to Christ, in its ideal form, the way God intended it to be, the reason why he died for it is so that he might make it without blemish, that it might be holy. Now it's enlightening to me to compare this verse with Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. That Jesus' intention in his sacrifice was to create a people without blemish. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that that must be my intention as well. That it must be my intention to be a child of God without fault. To work out my own salvation for that very purpose. That I might be blameless and without blemish. Bring me back again to what we said earlier. So what the Bible is presenting is that our purpose is God's purpose. Our work is His work. That we are joined together in this effort. What we find many times though is that in religious life today, that's not so with people. It's not so with churches. That God has a spiritual intention for His people to make them morally right and wrong, to deal with their evil in a very profound and blameless way. And what they're concerned about is getting together to have a good time. What they're concerned about is being a group of people that you see get along and feel good about themselves. But Paul says... All of this, becoming blameless and harmless and without blemish, 
is that we might shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What kind of world do we live in today? I would suggest to you it's not a whole lot unlike the world that Paul describes here in the first century. I can tell you what it's not. It's not blameless, it's not harmless, and it's not without fault. You don't have to look very far to realize that those adjectives don't describe the society in which we live. So Paul places the Christian in stark contrast to the society in which he lives. That here's what you are to be because this is where you live. The term generation, Paul uses here, is a broad term that refers to the people of a day. It's not simply the aspect of a single physical generation, but the word is used metaphorically to describe a society that has adopted a culture or lives a certain way. Jesus over and over again said, That his generation that he lived in was evil, that it was adulterous, that it sought after a sign, that it had no regard for the truth. He was very willing to describe his generation in very negative tones as he brought to the people to understanding the difference between being a child of God and being a person of the world. That this is where you live, but this cannot be who you are. We are not... In the context of Paul's writing, we are not placed beside the generation that we live in. We are not next to this crooked and perverse people. We are in the middle of them. You are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Do you feel that? Do you understand the implications of that in our lives? You cannot escape the culture of your day. You cannot be free from it through some type of mystical uh, assumption of your minds. You can't simply in your own mind draw away and not be influenced by the people around them. But you can choose to live contrary to it. And the conscious choice that you and I make to obey God or not to obey God, the daily decisions we make to be a part of or not to be a part of the people that are around us, ultimately determine whether or not we are blameless, whether or not we are harmless, and whether or not we are without blemish. Crooked and perverse is an interesting phrase. The term crooked is the Greek word skolios, which means to be bent or curved or twisted. Scoliosis is an abnormal curvature of the spine. Moses used these same words back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32 to describe the rebellious people of his own day. He said this is a crooked and perverse people. They have turned away from the path. God had them on a straight course, but now they've turned and they have gone the curve away from him. They have deviated from the standard. And that's what this aspect you see of crooked actually indicates. That there's a path that's been drawn, there is a standard that exists, an objective standard by which we can measure whether or not we are where we ought to be. Now there's a whole society out there that doesn't believe there's a standard. That the standards are whatever you think, whatever you want, or whatever determined by every culture, but there's no real pathway. There's no real objective standard. And in that sense, it's impossible to judge someone as being crooked or perverse because they don't accept the standard. Well, whether we accept it or not, it's theirs or not. And that's the whole aspect of Revelation. Solomon spoke in his day of those who speak perverse things, Proverbs chapter 2, that they leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. They're just evil. Not some of the time, but all the time. And over and over again, we see glimpses of that in our society today. When someone walks into a school and starts shooting innocent children, when people blow up buildings, we see individuals trying to kill one another or going off on deviant paths, we realize, wait a minute, that's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? Because there's a path. That's perverse. Why is it perverse? Because there's a path. There is an objective standard. 
as long as we as a world reject the objective message of God, that perversity will be a way of life for people. And that's really the same type of thing that's involved in the second word. There's a crooked society and there's a perverse society. The word is diastropho, which means to be distorted. It's not just the idea of being crooked, but it means that which is going a path to corruption. So the person turns away from the standard and then begins living that way. And where is it leading? Where will it end up? It is decaying and corrupting before them. One commentator tells us this word was used referred to a warped piece of timber that the carpenters could not let ever use. You ever leave a piece of wood out in the rain and then go back later on and try to use it? It warps. You ever try to straighten that out? That's not very easy to do. Because once it's bent, it's bent. So you throw it away and you go get another straight piece if you can. The idea of perverse is just that. That this society we live in is bent on serving, a, on living for themselves and not God. This society is destined for the judgment of God. And there's nothing that's going to forestall that because we live in a crooked and perverse generation. But you and I, we can be different than that. We can be lights that shine in a perverse society. In fact, what Peter says in the very first gospel sermon as he called people to obedience to the gospel he says, be saved from this perverse generation. Why do I need to be saved from this generation? Because this generation is going to be judged. Because these people that are deviant are going to come to the judgment of God and be condemned ultimately to an eternal hell. Be saved from that. Some theologians would describe the world that we live in as post-Christian culture. That simply means that the old norms that once held true are no longer accepted by the majority. It means those things that at one time you see that people always held in common, a belief in God, that the Bible was the Word of God, that Jesus was the Son of God, that people should live by a certain moral standard. Such things are no longer accepted. They're no longer the case. The majority now accepts basic principles that are not based upon a standard of morality. And so we live in this culture, this dark and perverse culture. It's true both socially and religiously. You look at socially the world that we live in, divorce and remarriage and living together without marriage and homosexual relationships are now commonly accepted as other lifestyles and the Christian holding the conviction that God's word is true and these relationships are guided by God's word, you see, are in the midst of it. Religiously, individuals not upholding to the patterns of worship, leadership, new age religions becoming accepted and spirituality being redefined in people's lives. False religion all around us. Christian lives in the midst of this. What are the implications of the terms that Paul presents before us? That we should be blameless, harmless, and without fault children of God in a perverse and crooked generation. Well, in closing, let me suggest this real quickly. Is that you and I must be cognizant of our responsibility and of our conduct in the world. We cannot attempt to gain the approval of an unbelieving society through compromise or through accommodation. That to give in or to accommodate to perversity and to the corruption that's around us puts us on that very same path. The God's call to holiness is a personal, individual call to take seriously the sin in my own life. We have to oppose evil and fight against it at every element of our own lives, even down to the thoughts that we have in our minds and how, whether or not we will discipline ourselves. That to be harmless and to be blameless is an ongoing battle in all of us. But we also must recognize 
that if we fight against evil, it must be done in a way that presents to us, you see, the spirit of Jesus Christ. I think about Romans chapter 12. Two other two passages real quickly here and then we'll close. Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about reacting to evil. In verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If, as much, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul's principle is pretty powerful. In fact, I think it's the very heart of the gospel message and the reflection of the life of Jesus and the society in which he even lived. That evil has to be fought against, it has to be overcome, but evil cannot be overcome with other evil. It must always be confronted with good, with blameless, pure lives, with innocent lives. And then Jesus as well taught us the same thing in Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, after, uh, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. He goes on to say, if you love people that love you and you hate people that hate you, you're just going with the flow. You're just going with the flow. The only confrontation of evil that's effective, the only confrontation of evil that's according to the principles of the Scriptures is to return evil with good. Even the physical assaults and the verbal assaults that sometimes take place and I believe will take place even among us, to those who hold to the standards of right, must always be responded to with kindness and meekness and goodness. If you really love your, your enemy, then your objective is to save him. And so he says, love your enemies, do good and lend nothing for hoping nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the unthankful and the, and the evil. Therefore be merciful just as your Heavenly Father also is merciful. I want you to notice that Paul ends up exactly where Jesus ends up in all of this. And that is in the ideal character of God himself. You must be children of God. You must reflect the character of God even as you confront evil. If he's merciful, be merciful. If he's compassionate, be compassionate. You be an individual that shows God to the world because that's what we're called to do. Thank you for your attention this morning. We're going to talk a little bit more, the Lord willing, about this aspect of what it means to be light and to live as light and what it means to hold forth the word of, the word of God, hold forth the word of life that he talks about in the latter part of that verse. So go ahead and think about those things and read about them and pray about them and we'll try to go that direction, the Lord willing, as we finish up this month's theme. Thank you for your attention. If you're not a child of God, we want to, uh, in fact, it's our greatest intention to encourage you and to uh, beg you to be uh, receptive of the mercy of God and Jesus Christ dying on the cross. You need to be a Christian. You need to be a child of God. That requires that you repent of your sin. You take seriously the fact that you are guilty before God. You confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and you be buried in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul says it provides for the individual the, right, the opportunity to be born again and to live again for God. Maybe we can help you do that. Let's stand and sing.